90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Surviving, surviving. <laughs> for, the first, yeah. for the first time, I have outlined my syllabi and my calendar in weeks of the semester, and it's done like a weird thing to my head in terms of keeping track of time. Yes, I'm I'm working with somebody on a, a contract right now where everything in their system is based on weeks from the first of the year. Yeah. So I get emails about like, can you do this in week 36? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that sounds like some weird default thing that just somebody didn't change. And then that became the way they kept time. <laughs> but, you know, it really does make sense for this particular contract. So I, I, I see why it's done totally. Yeah. It's and just a, it's a strange way. And, you know, we've talked about the academic calendar before. It, exactly. And so I actually I actually did my syllabi in weeks chunks. So four week chunks because it's essentially 16 weeks of instruction. And so I just said week one through four. This is what we're going to cover because invariably either I finish something early like mineralogy, because it's not my fave, <laughs> or I take forever on something like plate tectonics. And so I'm like, okay, these are the things we're going to do. I kind of love it. It like provides me with structure, but allows my hippiness to sort of <laughs> still exist within that structure. <laughs> you have a little bit of guidance to your wonderings. Exactly. Yeah, I kind of like it. It's just like a little poke, like, oh, week five's coming up. So, so yeah, so I'm in week four. Um, it feels like week 14, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the classes are starting to, you know, talk a lot more, get to know each other. So that's both good and bad. Um, so, yeah, it's been fun. All right. Yeah, you're about to leave the country again, aren't you? I can't even I keep am. track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm... I've actually been really busy getting a lot done up at my shop. Some new equipment moved in that uh, I'll tell more about on another occasion. <laughs> uh, but yeah, more heavy equipment, uh, some fun things happening there. And of course, all happening a couple days before I leave the country for a week. Yeah, of course. You do this to yourself. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> totally fair. <laughs> uh, that's got to be rough that you're going to get all these toys and then you have to leave. Well, there's going to be a lot of read the manual moments. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to have lots of light bedtime reading. That's true. And at least you'll have that whole entire across the pond flight that you should probably read before you fire everything up. <laughs> yeah. So I'll have eight, eight and a half hours there. Uh, and I desperately need to stay awake because I need to be exhausted when I land. Ah, mm-hmm. For the timing to work out. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of math to work out on these uh, on these flights like this. Um, are you flying into Gatwick or Heathrow? Heathrow. I've never flown into Heathrow. I've only flown into Gatwick. I had the option of either. And oh, okay. I said, well, I'll try Heathrow. Like, there's a lot more flights in and out. So. Yeah, there is, which means it could be like Chicago, which you don't have very good luck with. So, fingers crossed. Well, I'm flying from Chicago oh, to gosh. Heathrow, so... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're going to be in Illinois next week. Great. <laughs> I, I built in a day on the front end. Oh, nice. <laughs> because 
I said, I don't know what's going to happen, but I <laughs> desperately need to be there by Monday morning. So I'm leaving Saturday morning. <laughs> Probably a good call on all counts. <laughs> yeah, and it'll give me a chance to, you know, it's a couple hour cab ride from the airport to where I'm going. Oh, nice. Uh, so I'll land at 11.30 p.m. local time. Oh, my goodness. And so I'm just going to get a hotel by the airport for the first night. Mm, that's a much better idea. <laughs> yeah. I've never been too impressed with those, but that's okay. You and then I leave early in the morning, the Saturday following the work week. So I'll probably do just the opposite. After I'm done with mm, work Friday, mm-hmm. I'll get a cab and hotel near the airport again. Yeah, exactly. Huh. Well, interesting. Well, I can't wait to hear what you think. And um, yeah, hopefully we get a chance to record while you're over there and see what is going on. Yeah, and I'll probably be talking a lot about the Greenwich Observatory. <laughs> I can't wait. So, <laughs> so the theme of obviously the next few weeks is going to be time, right? <laughs> yes. And the, the Greenwich Observatory is a little bit more finer slices of time and more recent techniques. Uh, but we thought it'd be fun to go way back and talk about geologic time and how do we know how old the Earth is? Yeah, so I've waxed in my mind, eloquently on this show before (laughs) about geologic time. And this is definitely something that I talk about with my students. And I also find it funny that as you get older, I feel like, well, me for sure, but I feel like other people too sort of get more interested in the history of things as opposed to just give me this answer so I can move forward. And so a whole part of my lecture in both native science and uh, intro geology is sort of a how do we figure out how old the earth is. Um, so this is especially for, you know, non-majors who aren't really familiar with the scientific method, even though they perform it every day when getting dressed, etc. cetera. <laughs> um, it's kind of a, it's a nice thing to say, look, science has failed a lot. <laughs> and every time we fail, we learn something from it and we build, build upon those failures to eventually get to, you know, what is the right answer for the time. And, uh, yeah, I think everyone's always surprised at how wrong science is. I mean, it's a way of approximating the truth. Exactly. And everyone's like, we haven't known this very long? Because we haven't known the age of the Earth for more than 100 years. Yeah, and I'm sure that it will continue to get revised, though I think we're coming to a pretty good conclusion. I think we are, too, but I did, like, this blew somebody's mind. I thought she was going to get up and leave class because she was like, so this could still change. (laughs) I was like, yeah, I mean, it's probably not going to change more than couple hundred thousand years or something and she's like but what (laughs) yes it's not gonna change in order of magnitude exactly not like it did probably (laughs) (laughs) not like it did on all these different ways that we're going to talk about and this is definitely not an exhaustive exhaustive list um it's just some things that i pulled that i found interesting and so we can go back to where so much of science happens and that's going to be in ancient greece Yeah, so we go back to something like 450 B.C. and Herodotus. Right. Um, I I love this story because it also gives me a chance to talk about other geologic processes. Um, And it's very place-based. And a lot of native science, as I've said many times on here, is about observations of the place you live. And that's exactly true for Herodotus. 
And so when he was sitting wondering how old the earth is, how do you figure this out when you're in Egypt and you, you know, you're sitting around and you're like, what is something that's constant? And well, it tur- rivers. Exactly. I mean, obviously we know they're not constant. They change a lot, but especially one big river, the Nile. And that's where he started. And I think there's a direct comparison, maybe in his mind, to tree rings and flood layers in the Nile. Exactly. Why would flood layers in the Nile not work exactly like tree rings? So you dig a big trench, and if you're able to trench to the bottom of flood layers in the Nile, then you count them up, and that's how old the earth is. Exactly. I always joke that Herodotus had his undergrads go out there and (laughs) and count those layers (laughs) That might be grad student material. (laughs) Maybe. That is true. Um, Those are some pretty big numbers up there. Um, So when Herodotus's cadre of student workers did this, (laughs) um, so he, he came up with thousands of years, which was way longer than probably anyone thought about at the time. But obviously there are some problems with this method. Right. And, you know, I wonder, because you're not going to count individual layers. If I were doing this, I would say the layers are probably roughly the same thickness for the part that he could excavate. Mm-hmm. So I would count up like 100 layers and break a stick to be that long. And then say, <laughs> okay, you know, I can, th- th- there are eight stick lengths of layers so that's 800 layers. I didn't know you were that much of a lumper, John Lehman. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that that hurts me. And I'm not the engineerish person of the group. <laughs> My strat sections are some of the most boring you'll ever see. So I'm oh. like, it's all pretty much fine-grained. Oh, man. That just... Oh, that was like stabbing me in the heart with a Jacob staff. <laughs> It's about the only thing they're useful for, coincidentally. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. We're done. (laughs) This this podcast (laughs) is over. Oh, my Lord. Um, So I'm going to assume that Herodotus went out there and counted every single one because he was a scientist that wanted to have an exact answer. (laughs) Wow, we have flipped roles for this show, for sure. This is outrageous. I I don't even know who you are anymore. (laughs) Um, The point being... (laughs) He got a couple thousand years, and if he did it John's way, he was way off. <laughs> well, okay, counting all the layers or saying thousands of years in stick lengths <laughs> is about the same thing. Okay, it probably is. <laughs> but obviously, you're not going to get to the bottom of all these flood deposits, most likely, and the Nile has not always been there over the entire history of the Earth, because as we know now, there were periods of time where all the water's locked up in ice, or very early in Earth's history, what water? It, yes, exactly. So all the stuff we didn't know about, and so we go through that exercise of what's wrong with it. Yeah, the Nile, you're assuming the Nile was always there. You're assuming it flooded every year. And back then, maybe it did. Now it doesn't. So that's not a very good estimation. And surely it didn't flood every single year, so you're missing some fidelity in your data there, which might be washed out if you're just using stick lengths to measure this <laughs> right <laughs> um but but that... I, I like your washed out <laughs> ah, ah, thanks i appreciate that <laughs> 
Um, but but this is the number that stood for a long time. It was just thousands of years because obviously there were some religious issues that got in the middle of advancing science for a while. Um, but religious issues also bring us to sort of the next estimate of the Earth as well, which comes way later. Yeah, so 1650, uh, coming out of the Church of Ireland. Right. And so, you know, I'm sure people were working on this before, but this one is one that people love to talk about, right? And this is from Archbishop James Usher. And uh, it's so great. Um, So at this time, 1650, you know, the church and science were still pretty associated, though. Um, As we got further along, obviously, we start to diverge there. But James Usher says, okay, we've got this rule of everything, which is the Bible. And so we can go backwards and count up all the people and how long they lived. And then if we go backwards, we figure out that the earth was created at 9 a.m. on October 26th, 4004 BC. What time zone was that in? I know. That's what I want to know, too. Obviously, <laughs> UTC. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. How do you do this? And I know this... This story is its own show. It's probably a book or something like that. This is all I'm going to talk about it because I don't know the story all that well, except for, wow. Yeah, so the Earth has a birthday coming up here in a month and a half. 9 a.m. I mean, okay, I, I was raised Catholic, am sort of Catholic, like... I don't read the Bible. That's what we're known for is not reading the Bible. <laughs> but 9 a.m., I definitely know there aren't times in there for how long people lived. So I don't really quite understand. This is definitely the stick method, though, because how do you know how long every single person you're counting backwards lived? You know, you can't just assume. Well, maybe you did just assumed a generational norm and then went backwards from there. It's the stick method, but you're reading the stick to 16 decimal places. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I'm going to carve a stick with those kind of gradations on it. Um, <laughs> so there's it's a, a vernier stick. <laughs> oh, oh. Mm, that was a, it's really good. <laughs> um, you're right. Those exist. <laughs> so... So this one's ridiculous, right? And so we go through all the, in class, you know, we go through all the things that are wrong with this. But I mean, these are things that were taken as fact, right? And so this doesn't actually make Herodotus's proclamation of several thousand years. It doesn't really advance that very much because so what? It makes it, you know, 5,800 years or something like that. 5,600 years old at that time. Right. So then we have to wait about, not, not quite a hundred years, uh, for Edmund Halley to come along. So obviously that name's pretty familiar. There's a, something about a ball of ice in the sky. That's right. And lots yeah. of rock. Ball of ice and lots of rock. Um, so this guy is the start of the rest of the very rich old white dudes that have nothing to do except for play science all day they weren't scientists then they were called philosophers right um but this is the start of that and he said okay 
How about we measure the amount of salt in the ocean? We could do that. That can be measured and quantified. But then you can measure the amount of salt going into the ocean and then figure out that rate. And then we would know how old the Earth is. So we assume the ocean starts out as a, you know, clean big glass of drinking water. Exactly. And that. we start dumping salt into it. So this is this is a time rate problem. Right. And so that's legit. That's something we do all the time. It also assumes the oceans were around when Earth was formed, which is not true. But if you don't have anything else to work with. Right. But, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on here that's a lot, you know, more than just measuring the salt in the Thames and the salt in the ocean and figuring that out. Right. So you don't have Google Earth, so you can't have an undergrad go and measure all the rivers going into the oceans. Yeah, and you don't have any kind of remote sensing or really any great way for concentration measurements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also, was the ocean fresh when it started? How fresh? Probably not. I mean, it was probably fresher than it is now, but it still wasn't a tall drink of water. So that was some problems um, in that. And so we don't really go very far with that because that is a ridiculously hard thing to do. Yes, it's one of those where the error bars are way larger than the entire book that it's written in. Oh, right, exactly. But this one actually sticks around for a long time, which we will get back to. But the next guy is not very far after this, and this is Georges-Louis Leclerc, but he has the best title, so we just call him the Comte de Buffon. Yes. Which I love. (laughs) And so this is in the 1770s, and this is my favorite one. Because it's so, I don't know, it's more physics than chemistry. I hate chemistry, as has been pointed out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so the Comte de Buffon took glass spheres. And so he's got these molten pieces of glass. And he, you know, spews them out into spheres. And then measures how long it takes for them to cool. And he scales this up to the size of the Earth, which we've known from a long time ago. And says, okay... The Earth is somewhere between 75,000 to 168,000 years old. So, so far, all of our estimates have been revising upwards. Uh, Right, exactly. By almost an order of magnitude every time. Exactly. And this is a huge deal, right? So he repeated this experiment many times. um, And it's kind of cool. This one caught on really well. Um, 100 years later, Lord Kelvin... Also a pretty famous name, right? Right. (laughs) He used a similar approach, but he took into account much more than Buffon. Because what the Comte de Buffon didn't do was, I mean, yes, there's a lot of silica on Earth. But there's a lot of other stuff, too. (laughs) Uh, If you use the stick method. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Okay, so I can't argue with this because... Lord Kelvin used a similar approach, but he obviously had came up with a lot of dynamics, right? He was pretty famous for his contributions to the field of thermodynamics. And using these advanced thermodynamics, plus the fact that the Earth isn't just silica, he actually didn't revise uh, Leclerc's estimates very much, just a little bit more. Yeah, well, I'll just point people back to the show where we talk about the composition of the Earth. And... <laughs> 
<laughs> By far in mass percentage. So uh, Okay, fine. So if you do the silica thing, fine. But actually, Kelvin <laughs> went a little farther. Um, and when he, when he started to develop all his, you know, thermodynamic models, that did change. Um, that did change it a lot more. So he said, okay, it's not just silica. I'm trying to try to figure that out. He doesn't get much different than that. But then he's like, all right, now I'm going to use thermodynamics to try to figure this out. And he came up with 20 to 40 million years. Yeah. And I, I love the fact that both of these scientists are philosophers. Yes. Were the idea was already there of, so let's suppose that the earth started out as a molten ball. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And you're starting to see some pieces come in that we would now expect, but there are a lot of things that are getting left out. Mm-hmm. One of the key ones so far is things like heat generation from radiation. Correct. So that's a big deal. What Lord Kelvin did take into account, I really like to throw this one in, not that anyone cares in intro, but I care because I think this is such a cool part of physics, is that he actually measured um, and took into account uh, tidal heating forces from the pool of everything. And I thought that was neat. Because just like you said, you know, we started out molten, but we're still hot in the middle. And so something's keeping us hot. And Kelvin realized this and said, oh, well, you know, these tidal forces could be keeping our insides going, which I thought was, that's a big step. It's a big step both in an order of magnitude of the years, but also a big step in thinking about the history of the earth and actually the processes that are happening. Right. And we've talked about extraterrestrial bodies where tidal heating plays a huge role. Yeah, exactly. And so it plays a role here. Um, I mean, uh, enough of one that he got us a whole order of magnitude. And so this is crazy now. Um, <laughs> to 20 to 40 million years. And it takes a little while for us to come up with anything above that. Although within that same century, we get a little, a little older. Right. So we fast forward to almost turn of the century, 1899. And John Jolly, who used something called a salt clock, which is not a fancy hourglass. Ha, no, it is not. It probably would have done better. So he goes back <laughs> to, to Halley's original idea about how much salt is in the ocean. Yeah. So unfortunately, step backwards. Uh, but he came up with somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 million years, plus or minus, depending on the version of his salt clock. Right, exactly. So, you know, he has, and this is how science worked, okay? This is how it works now. You know, Halley's stuff failed because he didn't take into account stuff. John Jolly took into account more things. You know, maybe he's like, okay, the oceans always have been salty. I don't know the exact details of this. But he used the salt clock and this simple, you know, rate problem to figure out, yeah, all right. Kelvin's right. We're at least that old, but we actually might be twice as old as Kelvin said, and even older than that. So all of this is a scientific method fail, and that's fine. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. Like, they expect scientists to be right, and that when they're wrong, it's a terrible thing. But we learn so much more when we're wrong, so it's okay. And this is a really good... 
lecture to do for an intro non-majors class because it starts off with, hey, we're not right all the time. We're not gods. Look how wrong we are. We didn't figure any of this crap out. And we definitely didn't figure it out until we started to talk, just like you said, about radioactivity. Right. And so then we start getting this idea. And I would say this brings us more into the modern scientific era Mm -hmm. uh, where Rutherford looked at radioactive decay chains and said, well, that is drastically going to slow the cooling rate of the earth. Mm -hmm. If we're generating all this heat with uh, radioactive decay of elements, I mean, it powers nuclear reactors. Yeah. And so that took us from... 500 million years to a billion years in the estimate. Now we're in the order of magnitude ballpark where we are today. Right. Exactly. Um, and so this is a big deal because the, just like you said, the radioactive heat in the earth, I mean, I, I jokingly tell my students and they've already started to get me on this. I need to joke a little less, but it's real funny <laughs> that you can answer everything with like basically heat and gravity. <laughs> like, yep. Yeah. Really, any answer on anything that I ask you can be boiled down, haha, to <laughs> like heat or gravity in some in some manner, right? And so the heat thing's a big deal. This is how we run plate tectonics. Um, it's how we're still going. It's why some planets have dried up. You know, all kinds of stuff. So on your midterm, it's heat and gravity, and then when you advance to the the higher topics for the final, it's the sun and volcanoes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, I'm going to tell that to my climate class. That'll be, yeah, that'll sum it up perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> you actually could get away with that. Yeah. I really want somebody to do it, to answer heat and gravity for everyone and explain it. And whenever I get that kid, I'm going to make him my grad student for sure. <laughs> uh, so, well, quick diversion. Uh, we had a rather ruthless grader in one class that I took. And uh, I decided one homework to start solving every single homework problem from F equals MA. Oh, my Lord. So it was many tens of pages because ah. every problem started F equals MA and worked building the, oh my God. <laughs> the equation from there. I love it so much. <laughs> I'm assuming this is in meteorology. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, God, that's so wonderful. Those homeworks are pages upon pages anyway, so that makes me even happier that you probably turned in, like, an entire notebook for this, like, four-set <laughs> problem set. <laughs> but um, anyway, side diversion. Yeah, I would have made you my grad student. That's great. <laughs> so, so yeah, so radioactivity is where, it at, where it's at, and like you said, sort of the modern era, but... Rutherford said a billion years old, but that's not what we are, right? We're 4.57 or something like that. We didn't figure that out until 1955. Right. And there's actually a section uh, on this gentleman in the uh, more recent Cosmos series, which I don't think is as good as the original Cosmos series, but yeah. uh, it, it does have a section talking about Claire Patterson. Right. And so... Um, <laughs> He was a student, is at the University of Chicago, right? Right. And he's a student. Like, think of what you did for your dissertation, what I did for my dissertation. This guy figured out the age of the earth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. So it makes me feel a little bad about myself. <laughs> um, but he was working on a radioactive um, radio. He was working on lead. Right. So he figured this out from that. Yeah. And uh, th- there's a lot of interesting stories oh, about yes. <laughs> trying to get away from contamination. Uh, you know, these readings, they don't make sense. The lead balance is way off. Something's not working. You'd scrub and clean and clean the lab, clean the instruments, seal all the cracks, like try to keep any contamination out. In fact, he actually made what is considered one of the first clean rooms mm-hmm. uh, during his graduate studies. Right, exactly. <laughs> and was still totally confused as to why these lead readings don't make and started looking at cores of, of sediments, of ice, of all kinds of things. And it turns out the lead was coming from tetraethyl lead, also known as lead gasoline. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he went on in his career to help get rid of that and to help, you know, create some of the the best environmental protection, you know, the science behind what became some of the environmental protection laws we have today. Right. I mean, um, so te- tetraethyl lead was used to keep engines from knocking. And, uh, and now I still know that there are some vehicles that require it that people buy additives for. Right. Yeah, uh, but it hasn't been in gasoline in a long time because of Claire Patterson. Right. Um, so one of my colleagues tells a story when she's telling this at, about how, like, when he figured out the age of the Earth based on this radioactivity. And, and he was looking at a meteorite, by the way, because why would a meteorite be a good thing to look at well nobody's burning leaded gasoline on it exactly (laughs) (laughs) there you go and you know assuming that everything in our solar system was made about the same time that's a pretty good um thing to use too so it's like okay here's a piece that was made when the earth was made and it probably has a lot less uncertainty in terms of the earth's big and it's got lots of different uh mineralogy the dynamics of it cooling are going to be a lot more complex uh, a little ball of rocks probably a lot easier to model yeah exactly no atmosphere to get in the way of everything exactly and so the story goes like when he figured out that his numbers were right which he checked over and over and over again like he had heart palpitations and had to actually go to the hospital oh wow <laughs> yeah because like the number was so different and that number was 4.5 billion years which is it's been revised up since then but not much Right. Again, we're not changing by orders of magnitude now. Exactly. Um, So I'm joking about saying, what did you do for your dissertation? But really, um, one of the other professors in our department, who's a pretty famous geochemist himself, says that he met Claire Patterson when he was looking at grad schools and he was touring Caltech. And he says, Claire Patterson sticks his head out of his office and says, I discovered the age of the earth. What have you done? So, uh, yeah, I think I would have cried and maybe changed my changed my major. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, it took us a long time to figure this out. And like we were discussing before, you know, yeah, we're, we're zeroing in on it right now. It's probably not going to change. Probably a whole lot more. But it still will. Right. We keep finding older and older rocks on earth you know what we have rocks that are 4.04 billion years old now um 
a zircon from the Jack Hills of Australia. So who knows? And we're definitely, uh, we're never going to get it down to 9.15 (laughs) a.m. Never say never, man. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that's, it's just sort of a cool history of figuring out where we came from, when we came from. And uh, hopefully when you go to the Greenwich Observatory, we'll talk more about, (laughs) about time next week. Yeah, so when someone says, well, how do you know the Earth is 4.65 billion years old? Now you can give them a 30-minute history. (laughs) Uh Ah, great. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome, science kids. (laughs) But with that, it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Now, this is super exciting because we've never had an author of a previous fun paper send us some more fun papers right we've had an author of a previous fun paper on the show before (laughs) uh, but they actually didn't know that we had used their paper Uh, (laughs) so jeffrey wagman found out that we used his paper on which seems heavier a pound of lead or a pound of feathers Mm -hmm. and uh, wrote us an email and said i'm glad that you enjoyed it I'm known for writing some some rather <laughs> wacky papers attached or some that you might find amusing. <laughs> oh, God, I love it so much. Um, so if you didn't read The Pound of Letter Feathers, which is a really interesting read. That was episode 169. So you can go back and read that. But um, so we read today another perception paper, which seems fairly like okay yeah this this should make sense but also you have to prove these things and that's what he's done absolutely so it is when can an object feel heavier than itself (laughs) perceived heaviness of a wielded object depends on grasp position this is wagman and aspel uh so this comes very timely because i just went to the doctor today because i have one of these weird ganglion cysts on my wrist and I'm always wigged out about, like, my wrist position when I'm riding and all this jazz. And so wrist position is a big deal when you're trying to figure out the weight of objects. It absolutely is. So they uh, did this study with a blindfolded participant. And they had some weighted cylinders. They were wooden dowel rods where they had drilled the center out and poured some lead in. That's fun in itself right there. <laughs> right. And... uh you know, Claire Patterson would be yelling. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but so we've got lead and it's in the center of these rods. So if the rod, I believe they were 60 centimeters long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was at the center. I believe those are the right numbers here. And they had some different weights of rods. And so the participants would grasp them either at the center or at some distance from the center, like 10, 20, 30 centimeters. Right. And then try to compare it to a standard. And they could switch back and forth as many times as they wanted. Is this heavier or lighter than the standard? Mm-hmm. And since they were blindfolded, they didn't know that there were only three different weights of rods and they were just grabbing them in different positions over and over. That's pretty good. Very simple. And yet proves the point, right? Right. I mean, they're, this paper is two pages long and there's a figure <laughs> yep <laughs> uh, but that's all you need to to prove this because it's really 
nice study design. I mean, this is it's kind of impressive how much different they perceive it as you get, you know, 20 centimeters from the center of mass. Yeah, so something that you perceived as, say, 140 arbitrary heaviness units, uh, you might perceive it something like 180. Yeah, that's that's cool. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think one of the places where this is really important, and you, you allude to this, is ergonomics. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so engineers, you, you have to design things where your human interface to the machine, your, your HMI, <laughs> is, is near the center of mass of the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, this is kind of... Uh, he sent us a bunch of papers, and it's going to kind of mess me up, you know? This is kind of, this perception business is kind of weird stuff. Yeah, and, you know, I was thinking about there's a thing in the manufacturing world called a flex arm. Okay. And it's, the idea is it makes a tool zero weight. Okay. So let's say you have a tool that does some operation. It's a drill or something like that that weighs 25 pounds. Mm-hmm. it's going to be awkward for your operator all day, every day on a production line to pick this thing up off the desk, use it, set it back down. on. The, they're going to be getting arm back strain and repetitive stress injury. Right. So you mount the tool to this flex arm or this load balancing arm, and you adjust springs in it so that wherever you let go of the tool, it just floats there. It doesn't move up. It doesn't move down. It just stays wherever you let go of it. I wish my so it has zero this. weight. <laughs> I, that's yeah. Okay, that's cool. Yes. And the whole thing that they do is manipulating the center of gravity of objects so that it feels like no weight to you, but reality in reality, you could be moving a sixty-pound tapping head. Right. So what's the what's the max weight limit on these flex arms? Uh, Some of them are huge. So, like, I could suspend myself with one. (laughs) Uh, Probably depends on the manufacturer of the specific thing. But, yeah, I mean, some of them hold really heavy tooling. Are you calling me fat, John? No. (laughs) Um, This, yeah, obviously that's what I want to do is just ride in one of these things. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because it'd be so weird to, like, not bounce around or you know even like i bet that takes some getting used to because i'm thinking about like washing dishes in like a commercial kitchen you know you pull the the dish arm down but there's always that tension and so when you let it go it'll like spring back up or something but to like let something go and it just stay in that spot yeah it's weird it's like zero gravity something or other yeah Mm. except without the you know annoying trying to drink water and eat shower (laughs) Okay, or the fun part. It depends on your outlook. <laughs> <laughs> but I you know I thought this was a really uh, a nice, fun, simple study, and one that you might not think about, but next time you pick up a, a spatula or a pair of tongs when you're cooking or anything, really, think about mm-hmm. how much it really weighs and then grab it somewhere else closer to what you think its center of mass is and feel the difference. Exactly. It's uh, it's an interesting little experiment to play with yourself. It is. That's um that's really weird. Jeff, thanks for sending us those. Um, mostly because we love it when someone does our job for us, but also because these are super cool and 
we should uh, have you on the show to blow our minds with some other weird stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I will mention uh, that's not the only feedback that we received this week. Yes. Yeah. Somebody, uh, somebody called me out on my hatred of geochemistry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so we've had several pieces of feedback. So thanks for that. And uh, I will pull this one up here, but we had someone who's starting to listen to the shows from early on and gave us sort of their, their summary up to where they were. And I thought it was uh, super entertaining. <laughs> I did too. So uh, Seppo from, and then he's from Sweden, right? Or uh, sorry, I'm sorry, Finland, Finland, not Sweden. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's probably a big deal. Um, <laughs> I love that he summed John up and he says, John likes and I, John got a bullet list, too, and mine was much less formal. Uh, John likes Python, automation, version control, open access, high-speed cameras, and ice as a mineral. <laughs> <laughs> and you got a single sentence. Yep. Uh, it said, Shannon is a Luddite who likes beer, field work, pour over coffee, and dislikes geochemistry. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you can hear this right now. That's me tanking on my beer glass that I'm drinking right now. <laughs> So, yeah, Seppo, you're correct. <laughs> and uh, he said thanks. He enjoys hearing us talk about uh, anything. And if we give him a shout-out, he probably won't hear it for a while because he's still 90 episodes back. <laughs> he's cranking through him pretty fast, though. So um, I hope he hangs on till this one. <laughs> yes, and uh, hopefully by the time he hears this, he says by the end of the year, he will have graduated with his master's in bedrock and economic geology from the University of Helsinki. So uh, congratulations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hope you get a job. <laughs> Absolutely. But if you have some feedback or would like to uh, send us some fun papers, point out some other characteristics, uh, or talk about how you perceive the weight of our show, does your <laughs> phone feel heavier when it's playing Don't Panic Geocast? <laughs> Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, heavier with knowledge. Um, you can email <laughs> us. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Especially let me know if I need to add any more cool, you know, estimates of the age of the earth in there. So show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Together we are at don'tpanicgeo. Um, on the Slack chat room, we're in the software underground on the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping everybody in stickers and keeping us going every week. We appreciate it. You can find us, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. Marty, why is everything so heavy in the future? Something <laughs> wrong with your gravitational field?